Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Justice Tech Pro's podcast. I believe this is episode 48. And today I wanted to talk about a couple topics. Uh, One specifically that um, I've been following is the BOP designation. What I mean by that is once, unfortunately, if you're in the prison system on a federal level and you then have to be designated to where you'll be serving the remainder of your time. Now, they have certain laws or rules, I should say, guidelines for where an inmate should be placed where, as it relates to distance. More recently, they came out with the First Step Act. And the First Step Act, I'm going to read you uh, what, it, what it says. The First Step Act, the question they ask within it is, how is BOP making sure all inmates are within 500 miles from home? So on the federal level, the guidelines stipulate that the inmates should be within 500 miles from the residents. It says the FCA requires, the First Step Act requires, the BOP to designate an inmate to a facility as close as practicable to the prisoner's primary residence and to the extent practicable in a facility within 500 driving miles of that residence. Now, if you notice... When I was looking at this, I see they they throw in that word practicable. And I believe by doing that, they leave themselves up for a lot of room for interpretation. Because basically what it's saying is, you know, generally, the way it should play out, an inmate should be designated within 500 miles of the residence. And I, th- I think that's fair. There's a lot of facilities. I think it's fair to find one. That's reasonable for families to visit, friends to visit, where it doesn't involve the huge expense of getting on a plane, booking a hotel, whatever it may be, when you, when you break that 500 miles. Because once you break that, it's pretty hard to drive, you know, in a day and, and go to a visit. It makes things very difficult. So the First Step Act is trying to enforce that. But they insert that practicable word. And by doing that, I believe that's where it leaves room to play games. And that's the only way I see it. I see it as playing games because there's no reason they could designate somebody less than 500 miles with all the facilities that are available. So here where is where it gets once again to the part where I'm somewhat baffled. And I really shouldn't be because these are, this is how things take place that people aren't aware of. I was following the defendants on the last case I was a part of, and two of them were designated that I was tracking. And one is over 2,200 miles from their primary residence. The other one is over 1,400 miles from their primary residence. Now, I'm waiting to see others and where they go. So I need to understand, and one specifically is an elderly gentleman, has a lot of health ailments, asked to be obviously somewhere closer in a facility, wasn't sent to where they asked to be. Not only were they not sent, but they were sent over 1,400 miles from their primary residence. So here you have where the regulation states it should be within 500 miles. On top of that, you have the First Step Act, which is saying to enforce that, 
and to keep the inmates within that 500 miles of their primary residence to allow for visitation, to allow for ease, you know, otherwise you have you have this distance which makes things very hard on the family, as if it's not already hard enough where the family has to go meet their loved one and visit their loved one in jail and try to do the best they can with that situation. Now, on top of it, you're going to throw in the monkey wrench of making it difficult. And I've always just, you know, I find these things so contradictory. In one breath, they give you something, and in the next breath, they take it away. So in one breath, they're telling you it has to be within 500 miles. Then they insert that word practicable, and I believe that's what they're going to use to hang their hat on. I could already see the argument. You know, if you're trying to jump in and you're trying to ask why your defendant was sent so far, I'm pretty sure they're going to revert back to that word where it's left up to interpretation and tell you, well, we just weren't able to do it. We tried, but we weren't able to do it. And it just goes back to what I say a lot of the time is a lot of people will tell me, oh, they can't do that, where it relates to certain things, whether it's you, you put in a motion and you're talking about uh, evidence you have and they re- reverse the evidence, they don't allow it in, and the response is always to me, oh, they can't do that. No, no, they can do that. You have to stop saying they can't do that, and this just proves they can do that. There's always some kind of loophole, some kind of gray area where it's not definitive, so they'll hang their hat on that, and they'll use that as their argument. So now you have to fight. You're put in a position after they're designated, and they're over the 500 miles away. Now you're put in the position where you have to fight to have them moved within the 500 miles. You have to cite the First Step Act. You have to cite the 500-mile regulation. And I guarantee they're going to come back with that word, that practicable word. And they're going to revert to that and say, well, it wasn't practicable. Okay, well, what is the threshold of being practicable? Where is that defined? And when you don't define something, you leave it vague like that. It's as if it doesn't even exist because now that regulation is null and void because you could revert back to and go back to using that term practicable. And you could simply just say, oh, it wasn't feasible. Couldn't do it. We had reasoning why we couldn't do that. Okay, so then why do you have the the regulation in the first place? Why do you even have the 500-mile standard? Just say what it really is. Say the BOP could do whatever they want, and they're going to do whatever they want. And if they don't like certain inmates or they have something against certain inmates, they're going to make it as hard as possible for the families. They're going to send them wherever they want to send them, as far as possible, so that you have to take plane, trains, and automobiles to get there. And have a one day visit. That's really what it is. And again I don't know who's aware of these things. I believe people read the first step back. They read these regulations. And they assume they're being enforced. Which rightfully so. Why should they assume otherwise right? Well they need to start assuming otherwise. Because that's not how things work. You could read something on a piece of paper. Where it says they have to do or it's recommended, I should say, that they do this and that, this is the regulation, then they'll leave these trigger words, which are excuse words, in my opinion, that's all they are, it's just an excuse, a reason to excuse the regulation. So they'll give you something, they'll set it, they'll say you have to be within 500 miles, but we're going to put this word in here 
that gives the BOP an out. So in case they don't want to follow our guidelines, they could use that word and dismiss it. And that's what I find here. You know, I was analyzing that to prepare in case we have to argue if the designation doesn't fall in line with the 500 miles. And when I saw that word, I got a little concerned because I, I, I know how they play certain things and I know how words are played with and I know how they like when things are vague because when something is vague and it isn't clear and concise, that's their scapegoat because it's not clearly defined. You know, you, you take that word out of there and it changes the entire game. I don't know why I just couldn't say it has to be within 500 miles. End of story. I really shouldn't say I don't know why. I do know why. The reason why is because they want to make sure they have the leeway to play games and to treat certain defendants a certain way and to make life harder for certain defendants. That's why they have that word in there. I'm not stupid and I don't think the public is stupid. I think a lot of the public relates to that and understands that. And I'm sure you'll get people on the opposite end who say, oh, it's too much of a conspiracy thought. You can't always think, you know, something is uh, is against you. You can't always think it's a conspiracy. Well, I'm not always thinking it's a conspiracy. I go by the facts. The facts are, in this last case, you have two specific defendants. Both went over the 500 miles. Not only did they go over it, one went three times over it, pretty much, and one went four times over it, almost five. You have 2,200 plus miles with one. You have 1,400, almost 1,500 miles with another. You mean to tell me that's not intentional? Are, are you kidding? If you go on the BOP website, you'll see the amount of facilities, federal facilities, that are way closer than 500 miles for these individuals. Way closer. And those are the ones, the only ones available? That's complete nonsense. That's just an excuse just to make life harder, just to make life more difficult for the family. And in doing so, make life way more difficult for the defendant. Because the defendant, of course, has relationships. They're not going to get as many visits. They're going to feel bad that their family has to go through that to pay them a visit. They're going to feel bad that their family has to go for the expense, go for the time. And these are all these moves are all done intentionally and nobody gets involved. Nobody regulates that. Lawyers could fight it. They could try to get the defendant moved. But it takes time. Once they're there, now you have to deal with the whole nonsense of red tape and paperwork and all that BS just to get this defendant where they should have been from inception. And that's the thing. You know, it, it goes back to an episode I had on accountability where things could just be done, moves could just be made, and there's no price to pay. You could, the BOP in this case could do what they want, and there's really nothing to stop that. I've seen even the judge not able to determine certain things with the BOP, where a judge will make a recommendation for a compassionate release to let a prisoner go, an inmate go home for a certain amount of time, especially now with the COVID crisis going on, and the BOP would override that and not take the recommendation. It may be different if a judge orders it. I'm not saying that. I'm just going into recommendations where it's up to the BOP. I've yet to see where a judge ordered something, and I have not witnessed how it played out on the BOP level. I would imagine they would have to abide by a judge orders. But a recommendation, the BOP is going to do what they want to do. 
And here's a primary, primary example. I've seen one of the defendant defendants, the attorneys put in a recommendation of a facility. The judge didn't have any objection to the recommendation of the facility. And yet the BOP bypassed that recommendation and sent the inmate 1,500 miles, 1,400 and change from their primary residence, an elderly gentleman with a lot of health ailments, and they sent him there. Now, of course, you know, he has a wife who's his age, children. That's, that's a very hard trip to make. That puts stress on everybody. But does, does anybody care about that? Of course not. They have certain vendettas. And they're just going to do what they everything in their power to make life miserable. Even after they have a guilty verdict or a plea, even after they have this person in their possession, even after they're already in the system, they still have to exhaust all efforts to be spiteful. And here's the final effort. And what is that? Detach that individual as far away from its family, from its support system, from his or her support system as you possibly can. Remove that aspect. Remove any pleasure that they could get from visits, from contact, from engaging with their loved ones, their friends, their relatives. And when you think about it, that should disturb most people. Regardless of, without even getting into guilt or innocence, somebody's already in the system. They're already dealing with what they have to deal with. The regulations state it should be within a certain amount of distance from the primary residence. Yet it's really not worth the paper it's written on because the BOP is going to do what they want to do. And that really is the bottom line. They do whatever they want to do. And it's up to you to then fight it. So they'll ship somebody to wherever they have to ship them to. And now it's up to you to fight that. Get them where they're supposed to be. Put in the paperwork. Go back and forth. Who knows what kind of process that's going to turn into. I've never dealt with that personally. I'm sure, unfortunately, I have to believe I am going to have to deal with it. Our team's going to have to deal with it because I just, I've seen how spiteful and how things have played out with other defendants. So I have to assume they're going to play that game when it relates to our case as well, specifically. So we may have to cross that bridge. And what bothers me most, it's a long road to battle out. I, I'm starting to learn the process. I've been investigating how it works, how you, what you have to submit. And the prisoner actually has to get involved. The prisoner has to submit a form to get moved. He or she has to start the process rolling. And then the defense has to support them and do whatever we have to do. But it's going to be a long, drawn-out process. And who knows what will happen. But in the meantime, they did what they wanted to do. And there's nothing to stop that. They chose to send the inmate way beyond the 500 miles and they're going to revert back to the term it wasn't practicable i know that's what's going to happen it doesn't take a genius to analyze that and figure that out you know by once once you i saw that word i said here we go here's their way out and it's incredible how these things go unchecked and the public's not aware of it and the system's okay with it they have no problem that allows them to play favorites I'll bet you dollars to donuts, whatever you want to bet, not one inmate, not one informant that ever had to do a little time was beyond that 500 mile mark. 
Whoever wants to take that bet, drop me an email because I'll I'll make that bet. I guarantee any informant was way below that 500 mile mark. But whoever's not an informant, I could probably cite hundreds, if not who knows how long, how many defendants that are above that 500 mark. And then if they were a target, someone that the government really had it out for, you could guarantee they're above that 500 mile mark. And no one sees anything wrong with that. Shouldn't the system play out the same way? So now if you're an informant and you got a two-time, shouldn't it play out the same way? But it doesn't. And my point with that is I don't need to get into the whole informant aspect of it. I, I've spoken about that many times. My point just is they're playing favorites. And in the legal system, it all goes back to justice is supposed to be blind. There's not supposed to be any favorites. But that's not a reality. And people are not seeing that. That's just not a reality. So it's very hypocritical what goes on. And sometimes the public's okay with that because they look at it like, well, they deserve it anyway. But you can't look at it that way. If you believe in the Constitution, you can't. It should be equal for everybody across the board. And now when the BOP gets involved and they play these games and they look to make somebody's life even harder than it already, already is, how is that acceptable? It shouldn't be. Unfortunately, it is, though, and that's how it plays out. And that really needs to stop. You know, I wanted to uh, discuss that because I've already seen it play out. I know it's going to continue to play out. I'm waiting to see if it plays out where I'm concerned, where we have to get involved as a, uh, my defense team. And I'm hoping it doesn't, but I'm being naive with that hope because uh, I'm pretty sure that's how it's going to go. And then we're going to be in the position where we have to fight it. And try to reverse it, even if we try to stay proactive of it now to remind them of the st First Step Act, which they don't need us to remind. They're well aware of that. So they're going to do what they want to do anyway. And they're going to revert back to how they have the ability to make a judgment call. If it's not feasible, they could do as they see fit. That's what they're going to revert back to. And they're going to obviously say it wasn't feasible. They'll make up some excuse there wasn't a bed available. Uh, secured, they'll make up something. But again, anyone with common sense could go on the BOP website, they could see all the facilities that are within 500 miles, and you could see there's plenty of spots, plenty of room, plenty of places to be designated that fulfill that 500-mile radius requirement. Unfortunately, rules don't apply when it deals with certain individuals. They're able to do what they want, and if somebody is a target and they want to make somebody's life harder than it already is, they're going to do that at all costs, and that's the reality of it. Which you know leads me into another topic that I was thinking about. I, I was going through a lot of our uh, pre-trial motions, and now some of the motions we're working on now, and getting the appeal ready on the case I'm involved in. And one thing that disturbed me when I was reading the minutes of a lot of these court days and court uh, transcripts that took place during the trial and even during the pretrial motions. What the government could do, a lot of the times, you'll show them something, and what they do do, and, where, and that's where you know it is about personal beliefs and personal 
disdain for somebody as opposed to the law and as opposed to what's right. A lot of the times throughout the trial, throughout the pretrial, we would show, and I'm sure this relates to, a lot of people can relate to this. This doesn't have to be specific to the trial I was involved in. Uh, it doesn't have to be specific to any of that. My point just is, in, in general terms, a lot of times the defendant, the defense, will show factual issues. They'll show things that come from forensic experts. They'll show things that are not present in the discovery. They'll show conversations and how they took place. And you'll, you'll show them in black and white. And, and often, more often than it should be, the government will shoo it away pretty much. You'll try to show them something and you'll try to say this isn't present and they won't even really give it the time to understand that to try to comprehend if what their supposed evidence is saying supports the charges. So when you try to disprove that with a forensic expert's analysis or lack of evidence in the discovery, their answer is pretty much, well, we don't see it that way. We see it another way. And that really opened my eyes to how much is open for interpretation. And that's very dangerous. They'll have things that are black and white. You'll show something that you feel is black and white. And any rational thinking person, one would think, when they read the exact same items, conclude that it is black and white. It's either right or it's wrong. But oftentimes, the response taken is, well, we don't see it that way. We see it another way. A gray area will then be created where you wouldn't think one existed. And now you're into a zone that is opinion-based. And it kind of makes you take a step back because you were so you were so set in thinking that this was a factual a factual representation. For example, you had a word. Let's just say you had a word that uh, somebody was saying, uh, this item is green. Now you listen to the tape, it doesn't say green, it says this item was red. You have a forensic expert approve that it says this item was red. So with that example now in your mind, and in your whole defense team's mind, you believe you proved your point. You, you heard the word red, you hired a forensic expert, he also heard the word red, he gave a report, he gave an affidavit supporting that, you submit it, you believe you have it locked, you believe you have it pretty much all wrapped up, you won that item. Well, you're wrong to believe that because what I've learned is what happens is it goes in front, they look at the motion, the government then puts it in opposition to that motion, basically saying, well, we don't hear it that way. We don't see it that way. Our team doesn't see it that way. Now, they don't even hire an expert. They don't even get a forensic expert. They're just going by their team. We took it out of our hands. So the defense will a lot of times take it out of their, out of their hands. They'll go to an uninterested third party whose job is to analyze things. They have no, no dog in that fight. Okay, we may be paying them. That's fine. I understand that part of it, but they're still a professional. They're, still, they're not going to put their professional repu, uh, reputation on the line as a forensic expert and give you an answer that's completely wrong just because they got paid. That's not what these experts do. They're a hired expert. Yes, they get paid for their services. I understand that. But they're not going to ruin their reputation and just give all these crazy analogies and crazy conclusions just be based on whoever's paying them. That's not how it works. 
So now we get an expert, we pay him, we get our result, which supports our original theory on what we heard. One would think the government would then get their expert to give papers, and then and then that's different. Then that goes above everybody, and now it's up to the experts, and now you got to decide which way it plays out, and which, I guess the judge would have to weigh which expert opinion is more important. I, you know, I, that would be hard to determine, but I guess it would boil down to credentials and prior cases. But that's not even where we got in our instance. We had many, we had two specific instances where we had an expert and they were dismissed without the government even giving a rebuttal uh, person to analyze and to conclude differently. So our, our expert was pretty much superseded by the prosecution's opinion. And I'm sure that happens a lot of times. And I, I can't wrap my head, my head around that. I really can't. Anybody listening should be perplexed by that. Because one would think that if somebody has degrees in their field, they're a certified expert, they have cases under their belt that they testified in, that their word and their analysis and conclusion would supersede the government who has no expertise in that field. They're not audio linguists. They're not audio forensic analysis experts. They're not. The same way I'm not. I may hear something. I'm not going to rely on my opinion. We didn't put put in motion saying justice tech pros, their analysis concluded this is what the word said. That's not how it worked. What happened was I analyzed it. I had my team listen to it. I made sure, first off, individuals in my firm heard the same things I did without even telling them. You know, I, I wouldn't even tell them what I heard. I said, listen to this and come back to me with what you hear. They would come back to me. I saw it matched to what I did. Now, I wouldn't be so arrogant to say, okay, put it in and say that's what I heard. First off, as we all know, they would say, well, he's the son, so it doesn't matter. He's, you know, So I already knew that was going to happen, so I didn't even go down that route. I just wanted internally with the defense everything to check out and then bring in an outside expert where I was self-aware to say, okay, maybe we heard it wrong. Maybe we heard it wrong. And I took the exact same steps. I sent it to an outside party. I did not tell them what I heard. I did not say, well, tell me if you hear this. It's not what I said at all. I gave them the transcript the government had. I gave them the audio. And I said, can you please verify what that word is? And they came back with the same results I have. Now we submit that and it's dismissed in the sense that the government opposes it saying, well, that's not what we believe. We don't, And we don't know who this expert is or where he came from. Well, why would you know? What, do you have a list of every single expert? Why would you know him? Look it up. You'll see where he came from. They gave an affidavit. They gave the supporting cases. I don't, there's nothing really complex about that. And yet it meant nothing. It was just brushed off. And I'm sure I'm giving this example, but my point is that's what's so disturbing. You wouldn't think certain things are up for debate. You wouldn't believe certain points made or certain, certain aspects uncovered that could help your case are up for debate where a judge could just dismiss it based on, I don't, uh, I don't agree with it. I don't see it that way. Well, this isn't up for interpretation. It has nothing to do with seeing it that way. We're showing you supported information to back up our theory by experts in the field. How could they be dismissed? 
And that's when I just started realizing that's the plain truth of it all. It, it goes back to how powerful the judge is sitting on the case because they decide all that. One would think, I'm sure an outside individual not knowing, which I believed before this all played out, one would think, well, what, you have an expert, they have to let that in because that's an uninterested third party. And then if there's an oppositional expert, so be it. And then it's a battle between the experts and then the jury would allow that battle to take place and they would gauge who they put more credibility with. But oftentimes than not, you're not even allowed to present the expert. And it's very disturbing when it's on that level, such a high stakes level where you're dealing with people's lives and opinion jumps in and it's a matter of an opinion and it's a matter of being dismissed based on, ah, we don't see it that way. And people really don't understand how much that takes place. The we don't see it that way mentality takes place. That shouldn't factor in when you're dealing in a court of law, we don't see it that way. You should be able to Show and display and, and, and understand what's factual, what's not, what's opinion-based, what's not, and what's up for debate and what's not. But it appears almost everything's up for debate and everything's up for interpretation. The law is so much interpretation-based, and, I, and I'm, I, I'm certain when, as it relates to attorneys, they already know this. What I'm saying, they already know, and I'm not really talking to them on this podcast right now, this is more for the general public because we're not aware of those things. Where one would think it's not up for interpretation, it is. And I'm sure many defense attorneys are frustrated by the same thing I am, where they will believe something is concrete, but yet there it goes, up for interpretation, up for debate. That's probably a battle they've had you know, their whole career. But for the general public, this is something, for me anyway, that was eye-opening and disappointing and disheartening because you would get very excited about a certain un uncovering, a certain realization, a certain revelation. And unfortunately, it's not as captivating as you thought and it's not as helpful as you thought because it could be dismissed. It could be pushed away, shooed away as if it's meaningless. Especially when you have, if you're dealing with a judge who is not going uh, what's fair is fair and going by the book and is trying to make things play out a certain way in favor of the prosecution, it's hard to get over that obstacle. It all goes back to the importance of having a fair judge. I can't stress that, stress that enough. And that's the luck of the draw. You have to just hope you get a fair one. The other topic I wanted to touch on, which goes into... It touches a bit on informants. I've spoken about how the new thing nowadays is the podcast and all that. The other new thing is interviews. That's what's getting big now, where these informants will do interviews on other podcasts. So they go on there as if they're appearing on Johnny Carson and, you know, Jay Leto and Conan O'Brien doing a big interview, big celebrity interview. So they'll go on there, they'll do their interview, they'll give their shtick, they'll go through their account of what they believe to be their truth or their lies in reality, and try to sell it on that platform. Try to sell the public, try to convince the public that they're turning over a new leaf, whatever they're doing. But my point is, 
I, I could analyze that for hours and, and break that aspect of it down and the need for attention and the need for affirmation from the public. I could really go off on a tangent with that one, but I'm going to hold off a bit. But my point just is, a recent interview happened, and I saw on a blog, which again, I keep I keep contradicting myself because I tell myself not to go on these stupid things because I get aggravated when I see all the nonsense that goes on. But once in a while, I check on, especially after this, I wanted to see the uh, general public, some of their feedback. So what was amazing to me is, on this specific informant's interview, an individual went on the blog and said, well, I just listened to that interview and I have to believe that the defendant that he testified against was 100% guilty. Probably, probably guilty. And that word probably stuck out to me because I wanted to tell that individual, right there, that statement shows the ignorance and the, and the uneducated jury pool that are serving on the jury. That's the exact mentality, probably. You can't convict somebody over probably. And you mean to tell me, listening to an interview, a one-sided interview, from an informant who has a motive, who is now trying to get popular, who is now doing these uh, broadcasts and these blogs and interviews, somebody who obviously has an agenda, when they don't have an agenda, say they just want to turn over a new leaf, you know, they ride off into the sunset. They do their own thing. They, they start over. That's what they chose to do, and they start over. When they're still trying to grasp at what they once were and tell tales of their heydays of being a cowboy, that shows me everything I need to see as far as motive and agenda, and it shows, should show anybody with common sense. They're trying to hold on to that. They want the best of both worlds. They want to hold on to what they supposedly were in the past, use that supposed reputation to then carry them over into this newfound fame of internet glory and podcast glory and blog glory and all that nonsense. They're trying to have the best of both worlds. And at the same breath say, oh no, I turned over a new leaf. Well, you didn't turn over a new leaf because you're bragging about the past to help carry over you and give you some kind of status now in the present. So that's not turning over a new leaf. If you're doing a complete 180, you're dropping that past and you're recreating a life for yourself. You're somewhere doing your own thing, raising your family, doing whatever you want to do, getting away from that. But to be telling stories, telling tales, talking about people, telling all these theories, don't try to fool anybody who has half a brain. Anybody with half a brain will see right through that. And then you get an individual who says, oh, Based on this interview, the defendant was probably 100% guilty of all charges. Well, right there, my ignorant friend, that just shows your colors. That shows that, unfortunately, people like you get on the jury, and that's why people do not have a fair trial. Because it's not about probably. And it's not about listening to one person's interpretation of events who has significant motive and agenda. Based on their testimony, they're trying to keep themselves out of jail. So they have an extreme motive to do whatever they can to get a positive result for the prosecution. And I already went down that whole road about the BS, how they don't care. They're just testifying. It doesn't matter if they get a conviction. That's all nonsense. That K-1 letter, which helps them out and gives them the get-out-of-jail-free card, all of that's weighed in there. They'll put in there, thanks to this defendant, thanks to this informant, 
we got X amount of convictions. So that's all nonsense with that. So let's talk reality, not, you know, hypotheticals and the fake reality of what takes place, where they use this descriptive and imaginative information and wording to try and fool the public that it really there is no vested interest whether the informant gets a guilty verdict or if the defendant goes free. There's no vested interest. Of course there is. The K-1 letter has a lot to do with that. And on that K-1 letter, they will reference the convictions they got. So the more convictions they got, the better that letter will reflect. And in turn, the judge will give more reasonable, more favorable terms. That's just how it goes. Those are the facts. That's not up for interpretation. People need to recognize that. So now you have the internet experts on forums who hear that interview and say, well, there you go, must be guilty. Well, how about you read the minutes, genius? How about you go through the court transcripts, you read the evidence, you compare it against the charges, then you make a determination. Don't use one interview on the internet years later and make your determination based on that. That just summed up the intelligence level. That just summed up how the general public... I don't even want to say that because I don't want to insert the, insult the general public. That summed up how people like that should not be on the jury. That's who you have to weed out. And that goes back to what bothers me. When you're vetting these jurors, there's got to be a way and there should be a way. I would make each juror... I know the judge isn't going to allow it, but in reality, it should be allowed. You should make each juror write down any internet handles... And what I mean by handles is any usernames they use, anything online accounts they use. So prior to serving on a jury, you could vet all that. You search those handles, you search their comments, you search the person they are online. Because unfortunately, more often than not, people, when they're online, they feel protected. And if they have a bad character or they have a character which has these stereotypes and these wave of beliefs, they'll push that online. They'll be more confident doing that online because they're anonymous. They can hide behind the computer. So you need those handles. You need those to really break through their online persona versus their public persona. For me, I'm the same person, whether I'm online, whether I'm talking to you in public, when I'm talking to you in private, I'm talking to you in business, I'm the same person. Some people like characters, some don't. I really don't care. That's just who I am. But one thing you could say is you get what you get on every different level, whether it's online, whether it's in the business office, whether it's with my employees, whether I'm doing a new contract, whether I'm dealing with my friends, you get the same exact person. Granted, I'll adjust. Obviously, you're not going to use the same vocabulary with your friends that you have to use when you're in a professional environment. You want to let your hair down with your friends. You want to, I'm not talking on that level. I'm just talking as far as character and as far as beliefs and things you say. They always carry over. So I don't know how it's not expected. When you're you're serving on a jury, your, your background, all comments you make, your social media should all be part of weighing your ability to serve on a jury. This guy who made this comment, he's probably 100% guilty. That guy should never sh- serve on a jury with his probably statement because he obviously don't know how the law works. He don't know it's beyond the reasonable doubt. He don't know you just weigh, you don't just weigh one 
informant's account of things on a podcast interview on the internet to try to gain fame and to try to get hits to their, their blog. He don't know that's not how it works. And this guy, I'm sure, is not alone. There's many people that think like that. I know for a fact there is because I read a lot of these comments. And what I try to put out there is I don't want anybody to think like me. I'm, I don't want anybody to think, oh, what I'm saying, when I'm defending a defendant, I'm not saying they're choir boys. I'm not saying, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not even going down that road. What I, what I say is very simplistic. It's very elementary. What I'm, my point, when you, when you boil it all down, is very simple. Any defendant, regardless of their reputation, regardless of the accusations, the only thing you want to make certain of, make sure the evidence presented in the case supports the charges. That's all I'm saying. Regardless of who is in front of you, at the very least, you just need to make sure the discovery, the evidence... The accusations being made all tie into the charges in the indictment. If they don't, if there's no link, if you can't link evidence to the charges, you cannot find the person guilty. That's just how it goes. To be beyond a reasonable doubt, they have to link together. It has to tie in. If it doesn't, you have to let the person go. I'm not saying you have to think in their mind they're an innocent person, they're an angel... I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is if you're doing your duty and you're serving on that trial and you're following the Constitution, you believe in the judicial system, it's your obligation to make sure the charges in the indictment are supported by the evidence in front of you, not supported by who a person's supposed to be. You're not convicting based on believing if this person is a member of an organization, a member of an enterprise. That's not the charges. The charges have to be in line with the actual criminal counts. And I say it time and again, remember, it's not illegal to be a member of any supposed secret society. It's not illegal. So you can't convict somebody on that. If you're going by the law, if you want to be a hypocrite and in one breath say you believe in the law and believe in justice, and then in the next breath, you know, do that, well, that's different. Then you're just a hypocrite, you're ignorant, and you're uneducated, and I can't help that. That's life. That's that's how it goes. You get people like that. My show's not for those people. My show's for those looking to learn and to understand what their responsibility is. Whether they agree or not, that's different, but at least to understand it. And that's what I try to connect with. Not ignorant individuals who listen to one interview and then conclude, ah, he's probably guilty. Well, genius, you heard in one interview, you didn't read one court minute, you didn't read anything that related to the actual evidence tying somebody to a crime. You're just making nonsensical, anonymous comments hiding behind your computer adding your input so the general... And the problem with that is the general public then reads those comments. And now you're negating the entire system and how it works with the probably. And my only concern with that is it affects in, it affects defendants. When you have jury members of that caliber, it's going to impact the defendants and getting a fair trial is not going to be possible. You're not going to have a jury of your peers. You're not going to have someone who is going to make sure that the threshold of beyond the reasonable doubt is met. You're just not going to have that. And how do you get a fair trial 
when you don't have that. When your threshold and your level of guilt is based on probably and not based on beyond a reasonable doubt, it is impossible to get a fair verdict. It's impossible. And that's what's so disturbing about comments like that. Not that they are affecting in any way on a personal level. I just don't like the idea that that's how certain members of society view the system and gauge it. Hearing an interview by an informant who has a huge agenda, huge motive to inform, uh, self-preservation and not being accountable for their own sins just to save their own skin to then move on to internet fame and blog fame and podcast fame, avoid any jail time. Those are big motivating factors. And now you're believing that and, and, and determining, well, whoever he testified against was probably guilty. Okay, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't go by the system. You don't go by how the Constitution works. You don't believe in beyond a reasonable doubt. You believe that if somebody's probably guilty or they have a reputation, they're guilty. Great, that's fine. You can believe that. Believe whatever you want. You shouldn't be serving on the jury. And anybody like that shouldn't be serving on the jury. And that's the problem, in a nutshell, because those are the jury members. And that just led me to where I would want, if I was an attorney, I would put in something, I would ask something where the jurors have to give up their user, their online usernames, their accounts, something just to give a little glimpse into what their real thoughts are, what their real actions are. How do they really believe? What do they really believe? How do they really act? Because you know when they're sitting in the jury, they're not going to come out with how they really feel about things. You just know that. They're not going to talk about if they're members of these online groups, of these forums. They're not going to get into that, and they're not probably even asked about that. So what you think you're getting as a fair juror may not be. You may get somebody like this guy on the jury who has an internet handle that they hide behind and make all these comments and read all this nonsense and make their own personal conclusions. And now this person's determining somebody's fate. And that's a huge gap I see, a huge problem I see. And I don't know how they're going to fix that outside of any cases I'm assigned to, I'm going to make sure I tell the defense team we have to do our best to get these jurors' handles. You got to get those handles and get on the internet right away and see what kind of forums they're in, see what kind of groups they're in, because who knows how that could affect the case. You get somebody with these preconceived notions. You have a big problem. And I don't know how to enforce that, but maybe you could do some investigation on that. Maybe there's a way to uncover that. I have my own tactics, but unfortunately it's after the fact. You don't get that before, where now I'll go back and try to see what the jurors were up to, what groups they were in, and now you try to see if that could help you on an appeal level. But I would have liked to have had all that information prior, and you just can't get it prior. That should all be given while you're trying to pick a jury. You know, the prospective juries, I'd say you pick them, you give the defense and the prosecution, give them maybe three, four days to go through their handles. They have to write down all of their online usernames and give, give the, each side three days to investigate, to do some due diligence, to make sure the jury picked 
was a jury that they believe could be fair and impartial. I don't see anything wrong in that. You give three days of investigative work. I don't see how that would be a problem. And I think that's a must to try to keep the system as fair as possible. That's a must. On the opposite side, say you have uh, an individual who's African-American as a defendant, and you got somebody in the jury who may be a white supremacist. They're not going to say that. But if you research their handle and their username, you may be able to uncover that. I really doubt that's somebody you want on the jury. You know, it works a lot of different ways. I just talk about, on my personal experience, how I've seen it play out. But I could go on and on. Different. We all know the discrimination that exists in this world. You know, we all know what takes place. Why not at least make sure when a defendant is going on trial that they get in the fairest trial possible from individuals who can separate themselves and from somebody who recognizes their obligation and who understands the Constitution and who, and who understands beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the only way to make a change, in my opinion. I know you could do, there's been a big spotlight now, which is good. It's a good thing on the justice system and how it's fair and unfair. But in reality, the only way to change it is with the jury pool. Because you're not going to, you could do everything you want to do as far as being able to have a fair case. But if you get a bad juror, you got a big problem. You get a juror who has these kind of thoughts and these kind of beliefs, you got a problem. So the only way to counteract that is to educate the jurors and to make sure you do proper due diligence that the person serving on the jury is as fair as possibly can be. I know it's impossible to get somebody 100% fair. That That's hard to do sometimes. But you want to get as fair as possible. You want to make sure it's not something blatant, like somebody making all these comments and blogs, all derogatory comments that go against the type of defendant that you may be dealing with. I just think that's very important. That's really it for today. I think I said my piece. Till next time.